be reading today's scripture, which comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 to 30. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Since many, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on air, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. For whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with the far greater labors, far greater imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at, one, at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less, ones, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a, a, night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak, and I am not weak? And who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Amen. And now, let's give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. I'm just going to finish those last three verses there. Verse 30. We're going to have that back up there. Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. And then two more verses. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. All right, this is God's word, thanks be to God. Cannot believe it, 2023 is coming to an end. I don't know if you can believe that. Maybe a few of you in this room are very reflective, proactive, you plan, you already knew this is coming, and basically 2023 is something that you've processed already. I certainly have not. I don't know how 2023 has been going for you. I think for a lot of people, it's been a tough year. Feel exhausted. Feel like it was just a blur. You hope that 2024 and beyond is going to be significantly better. Maybe for some of you, it was a great year. Like you want to repeat it or maybe just continue it or even better it in 2024. But we all know it's happy Thanksgiving Sunday. And it's hard during the holidays because some people might feel like you have to put on an air of being happy and thankful. But can I ask you, are you thankful and what for? The Bible says be thankful always, rejoice always. I mean, there's always reasons for that, but are you thankful and what for? 
I've just got two headings for us that'll guide us along. Okay, just two headings. Common culture, and then second, counterculture. Apostle Paul engages in common culture first, and then second in this passage, he counters it. All right, common culture. What's the norm? Verse 18, we started reading. Daniel read, many boast according to the flesh. Many boast according to the flesh. What is that? It just means people like to brag. Of course they do. People like to talk about themselves and post about themselves about what's going well in their lives. This happened in Paul's day and our day, of course. It happened to the Corinthians, and of course it happens with Californians. And some few people in Apostle Paul's day at Corinth were making a literal killing off of boasting or bragging about themselves because they were exploiting, lying, deceiving, and enslaving a number of people at Corinth, and they're actually making a quite lucrative living off of that. In other words, fraudsters, just with spiritual dress in the name of God, can be quite profitable. And these people boasting of themselves, marketing themselves in this way, Paul calls them out in verse 5 of this chapter, which we did not read, he sarcastically calls them out and says, you know, the super apostles. You know, I think he takes their self-designated description, the way that they view themselves, that they're the best apostles, and Paul calls them out. Oh, these super apostles who love to boast about themselves. Now, I think it should be commonly known that if you are prone to boast and brag about yourself, your track record, pedigree, accomplishments, business, degrees, wealth, whatever it is, you like to think about it, talk about it, post about it, you kind of mention it and repeat it, and it's almost like you can't help it, that's usually a sign that you're terribly fragile, okay? Terribly, maybe insecure. You're compensating for something right? You need to make up for something that is very missing in your life. A lot of people would say you're codependent, codependent on a certain condition or a certain kind of success to fall into your life. But I want to suggest to you, this is according to the scriptures, people who tend to brag or boast about themselves, we call that a spirit of pride, pride, the preacher who's talking to you knows this very, very well in and of himself, who struggles with it day in and day out, probably for the rest of his life. The problem with prideful, boastful people is, is that it's insatiable. Pride craves and covets more. Pride is restless because you need more. Pride always requires one more, one more. And I think there's very few things in life that the Bible warns against and the pride of life, the boasting of life. This is what the world does. That is self-destructive because the idolatry of the self, living for and about and around and revolving around yourself, is the one idolatry that actually swallows itself. The self can never deliver what the self really wants most. It'll never end, and it's misery-inducing. 
It's misery-inducing. A lot of studies, I think I've referred to this before, what is the number one criteria or almost scientific study for a happy Thanksgiving? How are most people happy and fulfilled and thankful, especially in this season? What would it be? It's love relationships. It's always been and always will be. To be loved and to love. I rewatched the social network about three, four weeks ago. Forgot how brilliant and good it is. The social network based on fictional version of Mark Zuckerberg, the rise of Facebook since he was a Harvard undergrad student. And in the opening scene, Aaron Sorkin, the screenplay writer, can't forget it. There's a girl, Erica, who is so turned off by the character of Mark Zuckerberg, his pride and condescension that she's dumping him. She's dumping him at this bar in Harvard Square. And she dumps him with these words. Mark, you're gonna go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I wanna know, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an, and then there's a word I can't say from the pulpit. Mark Zuckerberg, you're gonna have problems with girls or love relationships, not because you're so smart and you're nerdy, but it's because fill in the blank. It's uncanny. The same sentiment is said of Steve Jobs, Michael Jordan, Elon Musk, geniuses, skilled, influential, wealthy, savvy, but when it comes to the number one criteria for a happy Thanksgiving seems to be lacking. Well, you know the author of these letters, Apostle Paul, had a lot to brag about. He was elite in the common culture of his day. He was actually the best of the best, but he was miserable because of it. Let me say that again. Apostle Paul, being the best of common culture, there's nothing wrong with that, to be the best of common culture. But without God, <laughs> devoid of God, Paul was his own God, was miserable because of it, and he actually inflicted misery upon other people. Did you notice in verses 19 to 20, Paul sarcastically tells the Corinthians, oh, you think you're so wise, but why do you then you let these super false apostles enslave you, put on airs, smack you across the face, exploit you, take advantage of you? Do you know why? Because in common culture, we all buy into celebrity culture. It breeds narcissism. It actually celebrates and cherishes ego-driven personalities who have a strong vision and a goal and you feel hopeful that they're going to get there and they're going to succeed and you feel like that because your life is not successful. Paul says to the Corinthians, in common culture, people who tend to brag and make it all about themselves end up being nowadays what we call toxic leaders abusive leaders, narcissistic personality disorder. 
Look up the definition of narcissism. It puts your needs above all else. You belittle and disparage and abuse all subordinates. You tend to micromanage them. And it's basically all revolves around you. This is precisely what Paul is describing about the super apostles. And here it is. When you make your life revolve around you, it's self-swallowing, self-destructive. It produces misery in yourself, and it inflicts such misery upon others. Oh, until the day that God himself stopped Paul in his tracks on the road to Damascus. You know, God can just leave you alone. God could have just left Paul alone. In Romans 1, it just says, God gave them over, meaning he just let you do what you want. Romans 1 says, God let you fulfill your dreams. God let you reach all your goals. God let you fulfill all your desires. Did you know, according to the Bible, that is actually evidence of the wrath of God? The judgment of God? Oh, but for God to stop you, for God to confront and turn you around, that is grace. That's mercy. And God stopped Paul on the road to Damascus. He overthrew his pride. He turned his whole life trajectory. He converted Paul with the gospel that Jesus Christ died and rose for him in love so that Paul would die to himself and live for Jesus. God inverted the entire value system of Paul. In other words, in other words, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, which completely changed the life of Paul, which changed his whole history and legacy, because we read his letters today, it's only because God stopped him in his common culture. Do you know what God had to do to stop him? He made Paul weak. The front door of conversion is he has to make you weak. The only people who come to Jesus today in this room are the ones who feel and know you are so weak. God made Paul weak. Weak. We come full circle in verses 32 to 33. He says, King Eratos, he was after me. I was being persecuted again. And then he says, in Damascus, Damascus, full circle. In Damascus, Paul had been overthrown and made weak. He was converted. In our passage, back in Damascus, he has to be let down in a basket like a baby. Like a baby. Entirely in need of help and protection. He's totally vulnerable. But without the help and protection of other people, his life might have come to an end. What is the theme here in this entire passage? God makes me weak. God made me weak. And next week, we're going to talk about how God kept Paul weak. In common culture, you turn in your CV, and in your interview, 
you better speak of, show, prove, and present your strengths. Nothing wrong with that. You better prove and present your strengths. But Paul counters all of that in verse 30, verse 30, which we just read. Verse 30. Next slide, please. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Common culture, you must prove and present your strengths or else you are deemed irrelevant. But in the eyes of God, it's your weaknesses that God is most attracted to and make you useful to God. Common culture and now the counterculture. Here's the counterculture. In order for Paul to counter common culture, he does have to engage in it first, right? In order to expose these false fatal super apostles who made a living off of bragging about themselves and exploiting other people in order to liberate captive Corinthians so that they would move away from these false prophets, false preachers, false leaders, cultic leaders. Paul has to enter the same playing field. And so, okay, I'll play the game for a little bit. He offers his impressive resume up front. He was the best of his day. He says, I'm speaking like a fool. I hate doing this. I don't like doing this. I really don't want to do this. But please don't count me a fool. But okay, here it is. Here's my resume. Here's my CV. Hebrew. Am I not Hebrew? I am. By this he means pure ethnicity. Full-blooded Jew. Full-blooded Jew. Hebrew. Israelite. Next slide, please. Israelite, Israelite, this is a religious identity as the people of God with all the rights and privileges afforded to him. Who is Hebrew? So am I. Who is an Israelite, religiously speaking, with all the rights and entitlements? So am I. Offspring of Abraham. Offspring of Abraham. That means the historic lineage, the seed of the promised seed. God's covenant people, the elect. And my friends, there is no greater pedigree than this one. To be chosen ethnically, chosen religiously, and then chosen with the historic track record. Paul was all three and then some. Now, how could I not, as one of your pastors, speak of a war that is just raging on ethnic religious, and historic grounds in Gaza right now. Maybe you've gone over some of the shock. Again, I can't watch all of the news, how appalling and grotesque it is. How confusing this must be. But I do ask Christian people here and everywhere across the world, you ought to pray. And then also you can give toward mercy and justice and peace for all people in Gaza. I provided one website here. You can vet it on your own, the Convoy of Hope. You can give in this holiday season for all the atrocities and casualties that are taking place right now. So many thousands, if not millions, being displaced. All the innocent civilians being slaughtered, both sides. 
But the reason I bring this up of an ethnic and religious and historic war is I would like to make an observation at this point. In American politics, there might be just only very few issues that both sides have remarkable consensus on. Republicans, Democrats both almost try to outlobby each other in their explicit support of Israel. There is a remarkable political influence and clout for Israel. Please do not think your pastor is against Israel. But we're here at a church, right? I'm here to teach you Bible and theology. Did you know that there's a spiritual worldview and current behind this? It's called Christian Zionism. Christian Zionism. There's a lot of people who interpret apocalyptic and Old Testament prophecies in such a way that the state of Israel now has a divine sanction to that physical plot of land. So not only do we have remarkable American consensus in support of Israel, but if you add a spiritual interpretive layer that Israel is warranted by God through the scriptures to belong to and entitled to and deserve that land, then I'm going to say sarcastically, oh, this is not loaded at all. This doesn't make it more tense at all, does it? Of course. And I would carefully say, as one of your pastors, this is enormously problematic, to say the least. I would say it's a lot like Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. Where only one candidate is the only candidate that evangelical Christians could vote for. And in Christian nationalism and in Christian Zionism, what I'd like to just submit to you, theologically and scripturally, is that it is erroneous, it is foolish, it is wrong to put God on one side in geopolitical, military, economic, secular, and state matters. It is utterly wrong. That is not the way you should treat the Bible. You heard the saying, you're playing checkers, the other person is playing chess. That's right. A lot of human beings, even Christian people, are trying to figure out, you're playing checkers. You're trying to put God on a checkerboard. He is infinitely wiser and greater than an artificial intelligence chess player. I am not saying to spiritualize everything in the Bible. No, 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 no. I am not saying that Israel doesn't have a special place as a people in redemptive history and in the future of God. I am not saying geopolitically which side is right or not. That is not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that misinterpretations, abuses of scripture never help. It actually makes it worse. Misinterpretations and abuses of scripture when it comes to sexual abuse, toxic abuse, spiritual abuse, and now war do not help and heal. They actually flame the fire. Everything must be reinterpreted in who? Jesus Christ. And are you telling me Jesus Christ is partial and prejudiced to one kind of ethnicity? That Jesus Christ is partial and prejudiced to one kind of religion before they come to him? 
that Jesus Christ can't break through every barrier and every wall. The only hope of the world is for people to reinterpret and to follow the Jesus who brings peace and justice for all. Oh, but back to our story, huh? Common culture and counterculture. Common culture, CV goes like this. And Apostle Paul could have totally done this. Just look at me, look at me. I talked to more people, I preached to more people, I had more converts, I planted more churches, I've written more. Oh yeah, he wrote more. When's the last book you wrote? Paul's last book belongs to the divinely inspired canon of scripture. I perform more signs and wonders, bigger and better, more miracles. That's common culture CV. CV. But what does Paul do instead? What does he do in this passage and all the way into chapter 12? He gives you a countercultural catalog of humiliating weaknesses. In common culture CVs, you're presenting and marketing me, yourself. But in a countercultural catalog that Paul presents in this passage, do you not know he's trying to communicate and convey this? This is how much I love you. Take, for instance, five times. Five. One is too many. Two is a lot. Five. Five times what happened to him? Forty lashes minus one. This is a unique and the most severe Jewish punishment to be administered in the synagogue. For capital, like the worst offense. It's the, it's the maximum sentence allowable by scripture, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Paul's back was lacerated 39 times. I mean, completely mutilated and torn apart. Now, I want you to think with me. After you went through that once, once, just the scars, kind of the healed wounds that were all across his back, for that to be retorn and reopened again and again and again and again five times, Paul says, I know the world is going to brag about their strengths. Let me brag about my suffering. And why would Paul brag about this? Because Paul is saying, it's not about me. Here's my love for you. His love for Jewish people surpassed even all the agony and the mutilation of 40 lashes less one five times. His CV dripped with his own blood. First time I'm preaching to this passage, and it hasn't changed in the last two or three weeks. The more I read it and, and pray through it, I'm just like, Lord, I, I can't relate. And I can't. I don't relate to the level and intensity of your physical sufferings. I don't think I've been persecuted, really, anything like this in my entire life. I don't think I go from danger to danger. I don't think I'm shipwrecked. I don't think I'm hungry or thirsty. I can't relate. And as one of your pastors, a lot of times I feel guilty. I feel disoriented. And I start wondering like, dude, Harold, are you even for real? Are you a Christian? Are you spreading and sharing the gospel like you should? Are you really following after Jesus? Until I get to verses 28 and 29 where Apostle Paul 
at the end of this catalog basically concludes with this, verse 28. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Ah, thank you, Paul. (laughs) Because after several verses to which I cannot, I'm like a complete foreigner. I don't even know what you're talking about. This is like a fantasy movie you're talking about. Ah, but here at the end, oh, this hits home. I can relate to this a lot. And here's what commentators will say about these two verses. This is the culmination of all his sufferings in gospel ministry. Commentators would say this was his greatest and constant cost in gospel ministry. In other words, where and how did Paul feel his weakness most? It was his daily or constant anxiety over all the churches. Now, of course, I'm nowhere near the scale of Apostle Paul's anxiety for all the churches. But absolutely, my friends, when you care for people, you care for your son or your daughter, you care for your small group, you care for people at the church, there is something that's called your heart and the heart of the anxiety of your heart attached to it. It'll cost you. You'll never be indifferent, but it's worth it. Every loss or downturn or crisis or betrayal will hurt. You're not immune from it. Your heart rises and falls basically with the life of the people. Your heart hurts and heals with the life of the people. You're right. If you don't love and don't care about people, you're pretty much anxiety free. But if you do care, and you do invest your life into the people, there is a gospel ministry and fruitfulness and joy that comes about beyond all compare than just living for yourself. But in its extreme, that if you care too much, if you just care too much, you make this your whole life, and you don't have Jesus Christ care for you, this will twist you. It can make you cynical, and it can crush you. Remember the whole context of 2 Corinthians here as we draw to a close here? We only got two more messages in this letter. Paul is being hated, publicly maligned, question attacked. There's all kinds of divisiveness at this church again. They're calling him out as being unimpressive, stupid, slow, not gifted. And in the face of that, like a lawyer, what would be Apostle Paul's final defense? What would be his strongest or most persuasive argument to defend his authenticity, apostolic authority, that indeed he has been sent by God? And marvel of all marvels, Apostle Paul writes in this letter as his final case in defense is not, look how strong I am, Look how strong I've been. Look at all my successes and accomplishments for you. No, but instead, he concludes with, look how weak I've become. And he dares to say, is there anybody weaker than me? 
find someone weaker than me. You rightfully would ask like me, how is that an argument? <laughs> oh, Paul, so that's, that's your case? No one is weaker than you? That's his case. Here's why. Paul Washer, the director of Heart Cry Missionary Agency, while he was living in Peru, he said someone had convinced him to learn to surf, but nobody had told him that when you go onto the water, a red flag means don't go into this water. But in he went, quickly he realized he's in serious trouble because he felt like he was just being sucked out constantly in that section of water. Behind him, he heard what he said sounded like a gurgling, suffocating sea lion. He turned around to see a 20-year-old young man who had fallen off his boogie board multiple times. And Paul Washer knew right away, that man is drowning. He saw the sheer terror on his face. I've seen that twice up close in my life. A young man who'd been thrown off, barely managing to swim, just barely hanging on to his boogie board. The man's face said he knew he was going to drown. And so Paul Washer thought to himself, well, I'm going to go near him and grab him and save him. But then something else stopped him. He had heard once, if you go near a drowning man and you try to rescue him alone, and if you're not trained in this area, what will happen is not only will you not save him, both of you will drown. So Paul went over somewhere else to a group of young, tip-top, athletic surfers, probably in their 20s. And Paul explained to them the situation. And that group of young surfers came over to this drowning young man. And even this group of young surfers, when looking upon the desperation of the situation, they looked scared. And Paul Washer reports it took them 20 to 30 minutes to bring that young man safely ashore. Now, how is it? Paul Washer would say, I am much bigger and stronger than that young man who was drowning. And the group of young surfers who did it for a living, they were much more athletic and skilled in the waters than this one young man. But how could one young man potentially threaten to drown them all? How could one young man threaten to overpower them all? Was it because he was innately disciplined? Strength of willpower? Or he was so smart? No. It's just because he was in sheer terror. Real fear took a hold of him. And that drowning young man knew that if I don't hold on to something else for dear life, I die. And there is my friends in abject weakness there is unfathomable power. In real weakness, you need and must cling to unfathomable power. This Thanksgiving Sunday, my dear friends, where, when, what, how, and why did you experience the power of God last? 
When did you sense God was so close in giving you something you could not produce by yourself? Wasn't it when you were really weak? Not when you were strong. In this passage, the Apostle Paul thanks God for making him weak. Apostle Paul trusts God in and with all of his weaknesses. Apostle Paul was powerfully used by God, not because he was strong, but because he was so weak. Do you? Would you thank God if you sense God making you weak? You may have a chronic condition. You have a family. Family, you have such a family need right now. You have no way out. Could you trust God that God would use that to show himself and his power in it? Do you not know that this church or any church or any mission trip or anyone you want to do for the gospel ministry is not because you prove yourself so strong, but people are really only drawn to Jesus because they see he is strong when you are weak. And my dear friends, what would have happened in all of our history and all of our lives if Jesus Christ himself did not make himself weak. Oh, how weak did he make himself for you? How broken and bloodied and humiliated and lonely did Jesus become for you? How many sleepless nights, how much wreckage did he have to experience to come and become so weak for you. Because here's what Jesus knows. You would dare not come close to him unless he made himself weak. And when he makes you weak, in that mutual weakness, mutual weakness, Jesus loves to meet with you. Jesus loves to show off his power in you. Jesus does something countercultural. Jesus does something that the world could not fathom. But when Jesus comes to meet and love and save you, as you are being made weak, 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 Oh, I pray that you would thank God and trust God and be used by God every way and in every time weakness comes in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that Christ Jesus, your son himself, lowered, made himself weak, was humiliated, made himself lowly and gentle, made himself approachable and broken, made himself so tender and welcoming,
made himself a God to whom I can finally feel safe. Oh Lord Jesus, to you we come. Oh Lord, to you alone we come. As you make us weak, as you've been made weak, welcome your people this day. And as we fall into your arms again, may all praise, all trust, all love, all obedience be yours to your glory. Hear us, we pray. Let me give you these moments to pray. Continue to pray in response, and we'll sing this song of response.